Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this book. We thank you for all that this book means, all the, the words that are contained herein. And we pray, dear Lord, that as we spend time in this book today, that we might hear your words to us. Lord, we're desperate, we're anxious to hear what you would say. Lord, often our hearts are troubled, often we're weighed down by the burdens that we face. And yet, dear Lord, you've promised to give us your peace. This passage that we're going to read this morning speaks of your peace. So we pray that as we listen, as we open our hearts, we might not simply hear your peace, but we might know your peace. Now hear us as we pray. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue through Luke chapter 24. Uh, we've gone through a number of different uh, encounters with Christ. And here we find something just a little bit different uh, in terms of the way that Christ makes himself known to his disciples. Luke chapter 24, and we begin reading at verse 36. Remember what's just happened here. Um, two disciples have been on the way to Emmaus. They encountered some stranger who turns out to be Jesus. They've recognized that this is Jesus. And as, as soon as they recognize him, he disappears from their sight. And they've made haste within that very hour to make their way back to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, uh, they learn that they're not the only ones who have encountered the Christ, but that Christ has also appeared to Simon. And as they are telling their story, as they are telling of their encounter with the Lord, this is what happens. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? Sounds like something I would say. <laughs> they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are two sayings that we sometimes use from time to time. I'm going to start the saying, and I'd like you to to complete the saying, and we're going to talk a little bit about what these sayings actually mean and what some of the implications of these sayings are and how these sayings, uh, in a sense, in a very real sense, tie into uh, what's going on in this particular passage. First saying begins like this, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Now that's an interesting saying. 
We've, uh, some of us have used that from, from time to time. It's a little bit light-hearted. Uh, it's, uh, I remember when I was in, in high school, especially in high school, if the teacher happened to step out of the room, there was no end to the mischief that we would get up to. Uh, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Now, there's another saying that has the same type of, of sense, but it's a little bit more significant, and it's a little bit more, it's a little bit darker, shall we say. Here's the first part of the saying. What happens in Vegas? Okay, same idea, isn't it? You go to Vegas, you can get up to all kinds of things, uh, some of which might be a lot of fun, some of which you might end up bringing something back with you that you didn't intend to bring back with you. Um, but what happens in Vegas doesn't actually stay in Vegas, although we might like to believe that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Sometimes we use that in a, in a light-hearted way, just like we use the first saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. It's, it's, a, it's a rationale, isn't it? It's an excuse for behavior that might not be the norm. It feels like we've been able to be set free to allow us to carry out a particular type of behavior. However, the saying what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, as I said, is a little bit darker. In fact, it's quite a lot darker, as there are some quite uh, awful and illicit behaviors that happen, not just in Vegas, but in our lives. And we imagine that what happens in a particular place, behind particular doors, in a particular situation, can stay there and it doesn't impact our other relationships, it doesn't impact the rest of our lives. I wonder how many of us have used sayings like that in order to excuse and, rash and rationalize particular behaviors in our own lives. There's a word for that. The word is on the board outside, compartmentalization. Now, compartmentalization in some senses can be helpful. I think many of us use compartmentalizations to keep our heads straight and to allow us to, to function well in our lives. Some of us have very, very demanding jobs, a lot of pressure put on us in our places of work and there's high expectations and uh, there are certain stresses that are associated with our places of work. Within our families, there are also expectations, there are also pressures, there are also stresses that are placed upon us in our, our families, there are expectations. And sometimes, in order to be able to function well at work, in order to be able to function well with our families, we have to employ a type of compartmentalization. We have to be able to separate, in some sense, our work life and our, our family life. Some of us travel. I, I drive about 25 minutes to get here. I know some people take the train uh, to, their, to their work. Some people have longer drives. And I know for many people that drive is, uh, or that, that train journey can become something of a, of a pressurization or a decompression time. You leave your, your home stuff at home, and be on your game at work. 
you can leave your work stuff at work and be on your, on your game back home. So sometimes that type of compartmentalization is very helpful. There's other places where compartmentalization is helpful as well. In, uh, in psychology, we can, we can have uh, uh, some, some places in our lives that are very, very difficult for us to, to touch. There are some difficult things that happen in our lives that we, that we don't want to address straight away. And sometimes what we need to do is take those things and place them in a box and close that box off for a time in order to be able to carry on with the rest of our lives. That's a type of compartmentalization. It doesn't mean that we don't address the stuff that's in the box. That's not healthy and that's not good because the box tends to spill over in unhealthy ways in our lives, okay? But there's a type of healthy compartmentalization where we put it away, we put it aside in order to address it at different times with the right people, with counselors, with pastors, with whoever it might be. But there are healthy places to deal with those things that are going on in our life. So that, 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 those are healthy practices of compartmentalization, but I'm sure we're all very much aware that there are very unhealthy practices of compartmentalization where there are parts of our lives that we just don't want other people to know about, uh, illicit perhaps parts of our lives, secret parts of our lives that we want to keep separate, that we don't want anyone else to know about, that we want to be just for us, and it's not hurting anybody else. It's just me. It's not going to affect anybody. We put that off into the side. And we say, this behavior has no impact upon the rest of my life. The problem is it does. <laughs> we just don't want to admit that. And eventually it will spill over. And eventually it will cause breakdowns within ourselves, within our relationships, and it will cause harm to those that we love. We also experience compartmentalization. And I think all of us do this one time or another, and sometimes this is how we live our lives in terms of our faith. It's the biggest place, I think, that we all live in a type of compartmentalized, a type of compartmentalized existence. Our spirituality and our physicality are two very different things. It's what we tell ourselves my relationship with Jesus uh, impacts a particular part of my life, but not the rest of it. We come to worship on a Sunday morning or Bible study uh, at different times in the week, and that's when I encounter the Lord, but the rest of my life is very, very different. I, 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 I heard many years ago a friend of mine who was a member of a particular church he was driving along the road and um, he was taking a turn and somebody was driving towards him and believed he was cutting them off. So the guy who was driving towards him gave him that special wave that people sometimes do. It just involves one finger. And the guy looked and realized that the person that was waving at him in that particular way was an elder in his church. <laughs> we compartmentalize our lives. We think that Jesus is only involved in what we define as the spiritual part of our lives and the rest of our lives. They've got nothing to do 
with Jesus. Nothing to do with our spirituality. Two separate things. I mean, in this, in this country, one of the things that's, that's very clear is the separation between church and state. I'm not talking politically. I'm just stating a reality. There is a separation between the church and state, between our faith and between our, our politics, between the way that we live out our lives and the way that we govern I, I, this, this country. Everything's tied together in the ancient world. There was no such separation. You look at uh, European history, you can't look at medieval European history and say, well, this was the secular world and this was the church world. You can't do that. The medieval world, in fact, all of the ancient world, faith, life, politics, everything were intertwined. There was no separation between faith and religion. In fact, the word religion we don't like the word religion. People often say, don't they, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. Well, stop that. Because the word religion is actually a really, really good word. And I'll tell you why it's a good word. Because the word religion means literally to bind things back together. Religio. The word ligio means to bind, to tie, like ligaments, connections, okay? Re always means back together. So religion brings everything back together. So there's no separation. So there's no compartmentalization in our lives. Well, what in the world has that got to do with this section of Luke chapter 24? Well, I think it's got everything to do with this particular passage. One of the things that you may have noticed over the last few weeks, uh, beginning on uh, Easter Sunday, as we started working our way through Luke chapter 24, is these different disciples, they've all had, they've all had very different encounters with the Lord. The first encounter was not involving the Lord at all. It was a story that they were told. They were simply asked to remember. That was their encounter. They encountered the Lord in, in their remembrance. They encountered the Lord in the telling of the story. That was the first thing. Then we find the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They encountered the Lord in the presence of a stranger. Well, it's the Lord. We know that, but they don't. All they see is a stranger. They don't know it's the Lord. Then they encounter the Lord in the reading of Scripture. The scriptures are opened up and they encounter the Lord in the scriptures. Then they encounter the Lord in the breaking of the bread. They see this is Jesus and all of a sudden he's gone. Up until this point, all of the passages, all of these encounters, you could say they were somewhat spiritual encounters and that sits fine with us up to a point. This was Jesus in a kind of ghostly way. It was an apparition of the Lord. It was a perception of Jesus that these people were encountering something not physical in any way, shape, or form. Now, one of the things, one of the things that happened in the, in the early church, there were a number of false teachings developed in the, in the earliest church. So church, there was a there was a school, and it was a very wide, very broad school of thought uh, called Gnosticism. 
And in this school of Gnosticism, it was very Greek uh, in its philosophical thinking. One of the things that, that they struggled with was the whole concept of the incarnation. There is no way they believed that God, who is spirit, could ever take on flesh. What spirit has to remain spirit and cannot become enfleshed, embodied with all that it means to have a body. So the Gnostics, there was a school of Gnosticism called Docetism. comes from the word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. And what they believed was that in the incarnation, Jesus only appeared to be human. He only seemed to be human. He wasn't human at all. He wasn't enfleshed at all. How could that possibly be? It made no sense to them at all. He had to be some type of manifestation, some type of uh, um, a, 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 a ghostly uh, apparition. And they went so far as to say that the, the closer you were to Christ and the more spiritual you were as a person, the more you could discern the true spiritual nature of Jesus, of the Christ. He would appear more and more ghostly the more spiritual you were. In fact, one more extreme brand of that teaching affirmed that when Christ walked in Palestine, his feet left no footprints. He simply was a ghostly apparition. So separating our, our physicality, our spirituality, uh, uh, separating those two out uh, uh, from the rest of, 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 of our lives is something that we've done as Christians from the very, very beginning. And here in this passage that we read today, this appearance of Jesus takes on a very, very different form from the ones that we've already encountered. And it takes us by surprise. The other encounters have been almost like an apparition, almost like something ghostly. But here we find something intensely physical. Oh yes, he suddenly appears in the room. It's a different type of encounter. But what happens next touches every single sense of the disciples in the way that this story is told. He appears in the room. They can see him. Okay? He um, speaks to them, and we're going to talk about what he says to them in a moment. He speaks to them. They can hear him. He says, why do you doubt? See my hands, see my feet, touch me. Do ghosts have bones and flesh as, 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 as look, I have bones and flesh? So we have, we have sight, we have sound, we have, we have touch. Give me a piece of fish. Give me a piece of fish, broiled fish. When fish is cooking, what fills the house? You're cooking fish. It smells. It smells. Sometimes Noel gives me a piece of smoked trout, and as soon as you open up that piece of fish, it's this 
this rich, intense, uh, smoky fish smell. Oh my goodness, it just gets you salivating. Even thinking about that, I, oh my goodness. <laughs> but the smell permeates the room. Sight and sound and touch and smell and taste. All of the senses are touched on in this particular passage. It's a very physical passage. It's a, it's a physical manifestation. And what that does is, it's, it says to, to the earliest Christians, and it says to us, stop with this nonsense of separating out your spirituality and your physicality. Stop separating out what you think belongs to you and what you think belongs to God. We have so much that we think belongs to us. Our property belongs to us. Our money belongs to us. Well, nonsense. God has given all of that to us. It all comes from Him. It all belongs to Him. In His grace, He's given it to us. There is no separation. And this passage helps us towards an understanding of that. The whole of us belongs to God. But because we misunderstand that, we end up with this, uh, this, 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 this life that's lived in compartments, we end up with very fractured lives. And so we live lives in some senses where we, 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 we may be troubled. And we may not be sure of what those troubles really are, but we struggle to put, put those pieces together. It's like, doing a, it's like doing one of those jigsaws that are just one color. We have a hard time putting those pieces in together. And we think, well, some of these pieces, they just they can't belong, can they? they? We have to keep them separate. I can't fit those in, so I'm not even going to try. And we throw everything back into the box. Fractured existence, trouble, fear, anxious. That's what the disciples are encountering, isn't it? All through this story, these words keep coming up. They're troubled, they're anxious, they're afraid. And they don't know what to do with it. And I think it's very, very significant that into the midst of that very fractured existence, when the Lord appears, what did he say? What did he say? Peace to you. That stands in sharp contrast to the way the disciples and the way that we experience life so often the Lord speaks his peace into our fractured existence in his commentary on uh, it's actually not in this passage but on on Matthew chapter 5 William Barclay speaks of this peace this shalom and when he speaks of it he talks of it not not just as as peace in some areas of our lives but he talks of it holistically there is a peace that Christ gives to the whole of our lives. And he, he says this, he says, the peace that the Bible speaks of, the shalom that comes from Christ, it's not just an absence of trouble, which is sometimes how we think about peace. I've got no worries, I've got no trouble. That's peace. Well, no, Barclay goes on. Peace is not just an absence of trouble, but it's an enjoyment of all that is good. 
Peace is not a negative word. It's a positive word. Remember what Jesus said in John's Gospel, I have come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. Not fractured, not fragmented lives, but life in all its fullness. What this passage does is it brings us to a place of recognizing the brokenness in our lives. The places where we compartmentalize. The places where we are fractured. In some of those places, it's not very easy for us to acknowledge them. And we don't, just don't want to acknowledge the places where we are fractured. The places where we're broken. We don't want to open those boxes that we've pushed away into the basement, that we've put hidden away into the attic. We don't want to open those boxes because they're very, very difficult to deal with. But that's a part of who we are, even those hard places. And into those hard places where we are broken, where we are fragmented, where we are fractured, Jesus comes and he speaks that word of peace. Peace where you're broken. Peace where you are troubled. Peace where you are anxious. Peace where you're fragmented. And when he speaks his peace, he brings his wholeness. He's not just Lord of the spiritual part of our lives. He's Lord of all of our lives. Through all of our senses. May we be able to acknowledge that our lives must be whole. And it's only in his presence and it's only with his peace that we truly can know that wholeness. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.